When I was fresh out of seminary as an associate pastor at Trinity Presbyterian Church in Charlotte, I was invited to preach a Vespers evening service at Sharon, Sharon Towers, which is a Presbyterian retirement center much like Westminster Woods here in Jacksonville. It housed many retired pastors and Presbyterians, and it was, as a newly ordained pastor, a little daunting. So I picked as my passage uh, a text from Romans, Paul's letter to the church at Rome, about justification by faith, that God loves us, justifies us by the basis of God's love for us in Jesus Christ. God reconciles us to God and to ourselves We are set right with God. And I preached what I thought was a pretty good sermon, especially since afterward, uh, as usual, the 50 or so congregation hobbled past and shared their uh, gentle words of encouragement. Then I noticed uh, a gentleman seated in a wheelchair over to my left who waited until the crowd had passed, and he wheeled himself over and stuck his hand out and introduced himself to me uh, as, a, as a retired pastor, uh, I, a name I knew well as being one of the greats. And he said to me, uh, uh, Dr. Goyer, that was a well-delivered sermon and your exegesis was wonderful. However, most of us here are close to the end of our lives and We dealt with the justification of God in Jesus Christ about 40 or 50 years ago. What we needed to hear, uh, what we need to hear is a word of hope. We need to be heartened by a word that tells us, even while we are in our mortal bodies wasting away, that God's power with us is not. We needed to hear something about resurrection. It was told to me in very loving and careful ways, and I was not offended. In fact, I learned much from him about how important it is to preach to the context of the congregation uh, that you stand before. Uh, A rule that I have mostly followed, uh, not always, as uh, 10 years ago, a Mother's Day sermon Uh, probably did not fit that description, Uh, yet usually I try to take that to heart. This morning I would like to preach, therefore, to the context of where I see the church in the United States is these days, which is, by the way, no longer mainstream, and especially Riverside Church in the last few months with our rash of illnesses cancers, and so forth. It seems that it has been almost epidemic. We've been struggling over other issues as well here. And with that context in mind, I lift up to you Paul's words to the church at Corinth from the epistle known as 2 Corinthians, chapter 4, verses 6 through chapter 5, 8, excuse me, verses 16. Hear the word of the Lord. So we do not lose heart. 
Even though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. Because we look not at what can be seen, but what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, if indeed when we have taken it off we will not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan under our burden because we wish not to be unclothed, but to be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, even though we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, we walk by faith, not by sight. This is the word of the Lord. When I was a ninth grader at McClinic Junior High School in Charlotte, I was struck with an enormous uh, piece of good luck, at least I thought at the first. The school board had decided by virtue of the census that they needed to open up another junior high school nearby called Cotswold Junior High. And what happened was in that school's opening, it turns out that they took most of the best basketball players from McClinic in that transfer, which opened up to me the starting position as center of McClinic Junior High School's basketball team. By virtue mostly of my height, I was almost 6'4 then. I weighed all of about 150 pounds. I was as gangly as a human ribbon. But I played my heart out, as did our team, at least we started to, until we lost We were basically awful, to tell you the truth, and our coach, it was his first coaching job as a newly graduated college teacher. He didn't know any more about how to do it than we did. It became clear to us after each game when he gave us that pep talk that we were gaining in strength every game that he was lying through his teeth. He was just simply trying to keep us from losing heart. When the season was over, we went 0-14, and 14, having lost every game by increasing amounts, the last by about 40 points. Then to add insult to injury at the ritualistic game between the faculty and the men's, or in this case, boys basketball team, we even lost that, which was, I think, an historical first for McClintic Junior High. Now, I would like to say at the tender age of 14 that I learned something in that, that it built character, but to tell you the truth, when you're 14, you don't really know what you're learning much, only that it hurt. I've since read Pat Conroy's book, 
about being on the losing basketball team at the Citadel called Losing Season. And in a way, looking back, it was for me a similar experience. Yet, mostly it felt at the time like a slap to my young and very vulnerable ego. I experienced mostly shame and failure. Now, however, I can look back on that experience with some gratitude, feeling like that it did, in fact, help me grow a little in character, and that while we don't always measure up, there is something in us that lasts even still. That what matters is not, is not, of course, as Bill said, what things look like on the outside, but what is happening on the inside in our hearts, in our souls. When Paul wrote his letter to the church at Corinth, they were dealing with much larger issues than failure or success of a basketball team. They were dealing with failure and success in terms of how culture defined it. And their culture, not like our own, was deeply success-oriented. Paul, the founder of the church at Corinth, was being judged now by that same church for not measuring up and for not being successful enough. He had promised them that he would return in a second visit, but things the way they were got complicated and he couldn't. He was now being criticized by that church for vacillating with his plans. He was also being compared to other missionaries in town, Those missionaries were golden-tongued and doing enormous numbers of miracles, apparently. Uh, In today's uh, language, they would be tele-evangelists with millions of watchers. And Paul, however, was defined by this church as, well, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his preaching is of no account. So Paul responds to this criticism, to his perceived failures, not with his own personal defense, but instead with the gospel. His confidence rests not in his preaching or his ability to perform miracles, but in his identification with Christ's death and resurrection. For Paul, the evidence of God is not to be found in impressive achievements or success, but in love and caring, especially when that love exposes you to suffering and weakness and caring for others. It's not about me, he writes them. It is instead about God. Just as God answered the tragic cosmic loss of Christ's crucifixion on the cross with the power of resurrection, Paul lifts up this same power as the hope in each of us, yea, in this whole cosmic place, saying even if we face failure, even if our bodies we live in fail, and even if we as a church fail, or struggle, that is not an indication of the presence of God. For God's presence and God's power is that which brings new life out of death. You may have heard about the recent 
Pew Charitable Trust poll revealing that as a church, the body called the church in the United States continues to dwindle. The number of people who now profess to be nuns, that is, they are not affiliated with any particular religious group, has doubled from 7% to 14% in the last few years. This is certainly true for the mainline denominations of Presbyterian, Methodist, Episcopal, Lutheran, and so forth. We are losing members every year. Most of it is generational. As we lose more and more older members, we are not seeing the equivalent of younger members filling their spaces in terms of their attendance, joining, commitment, or even leadership. So based on how things look on the outside, it seems rather dismal. It's easy to lose heart, especially when, like Riverside, we've had so many people struggling with health issues or when there seems to be a lot of conflict or loss around. Friends, the truth is that we live in a culture that worships the external symbols of success. For how things look on the outside, our appearance, the costumes we wear, the persona we project, what we cover ourselves with is seemingly the most important thing. And this is the great deceit. The pressure for this is so intense that we grow up almost completely disconnected from our true and real and authentic selves, the heart and soul of who we are, believing that what we appear to be on the outside is all that matters, that that is who we really are. There's an old 12-step saying that goes, do not compare your insides to another person's outsides. Yesterday, while on a walk, I ran into someone who had lost a child in the last few years, and as we were talking about her life and the lives of other friends, she asked me the question that we all ask. Does everybody go through this kind of stuff? And I could only say, well, not everybody loses and goes through such a tragic loss as you with your lost child. But behind every door is enough stuff to fill up this world. And that is exactly the very place that we don't want the world to see. So we try on this outfit to look better, or that outfit to appear successful. When I was in high school, my 10th grade year, I wore khaki sweaters with a knot monogram and French cuffs and wore cologne. That outfit didn't really fit, even though my girlfriend at the time had given it to me. In my junior year, I decided to be Roy boy, cowboy goy, as they called me, and I wore blue jeans and cowboy boots and a cowboy hat. That didn't fit too well either. My senior year, I became sort of hippie light with biker boots, ragged blue jeans, and a, and a torn T-shirt. It was more uh, an effort to look like I was indifferent and didn't care. 
The next year, I joined a fraternity. Back to button-down collar shirts and Weegians and khaki pants. Four outfits in four years. Trying to figure out, who am I? And in a way, I have to say that I'm still trying to figure that out, dressed in ministry outfit or not, that it is, in fact, the journey for each of us to finally figure out who we are in our deepest, most, most authentic selves in a world that doesn't seem to reward that search. The reality is that success, especially too early in life, can be the greatest danger to it. We all know the tragedy of a great high school athlete who never, ever leaves that experience and for the rest of his or her life still lives out of being the quarterback of the football team or of a young child star who can never really separate herself from who she is truly to who she appears to be in Hollywood. This is why Thomas Merton, the great Catholic spiritualist, wrote, If I had a message to my contemporaries, it is surely this. Be anything you like. Be a madman, drunks and jerks of every shape and form, but at all costs avoid one thing, success. If you are too obsessed with success, you will forget to live If you have learned only how to be a success, your life has probably been wasted. The point is that success seldom leads us to our true selves. Usually it takes suffering or hardship or conflict or struggle or especially even failure. When we can no longer continue to act as the imposter that we want others to see, those who have got it all together, then by the grace of God we turn inward and discover there, by the same grace that we are, as Paul says, earthen vessels. That is to say, made out of dirt and clay and basically empty and in almost every case cracked. Crack pots we are. And this is the place that we discover what hope and faith are all about. This is where we discover what resurrection and new life is all about. This is about God, you see, and not about us. Don't lose hope, Paul says. Pay attention to what is going on in the inside, not how things look on the outside. It is a hope that rests on faith, he says. Therefore, he can say, we do not lose heart. Even though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for the eternal weight of glory. Because we look not at what can be seen, but at what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, we, us, these bodies. But what cannot be seen is eternal. 
slight momentary affliction doesn't always feel slight when you're in the middle of it, but in the eternity of time it is, trust me. This eternal weight of glory as opposed to the unbearable lightness of being. Eternal weight of glory as compared to the unbearable lightness of being, that shallow, insignificant obsession with ourselves, with our materialistic, consumer, success-driven life, this eternal weight of glory when our souls are so full of love, spilling over with grace, with a true sense of identity apart from all the other agendas that we carry around with us. Inside of us, this eternal weight of glory becomes, in fact, the whole countenance of who we are. The persona is changed by the Spirit. Then we are living lives from the inside out and not from the outside in, authentically, really, vulnerably, holistically, congruently, And then what happens on the outside is way less important than what is going on on the inside. You with me? You know I'm telling the truth. This church at Riverside that looks so good on the outside. People don't come here because we look too good on the outside. If they only knew. That in every single pew and in every single body was enough pain to break your heart. And enough joy and hope. This church at Riverside, living out of the power of God for each of us to bring new life where it seems there is none. Over and over and over again so that our afflictions are, in fact, just temporary. For we are earthen vessels full of the eternal weight of God's glory. So we come to this table remembering and preparing. First, we remember that it is the table of failure, of the body broken and the blood spilled out. But it is, in the end, the table of hope and resurrection, preparing us for the promise of that new life, giving ourselves over to the fact that what we eat, we become more fully ourselves as we become more fully Christ-like, being renewed day by day. Let us bring ourselves to bear.